Right on, right on, right on. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Right On Radio. We'll be joined by Chris in a few minutes. This one should be very, very interesting indeed. Hey, if you're new to Right On Radio, my name is Jeff, and the theme behind the show is live right in the real world. Hey, we'll show you the real world, and you decide how to live right. We are a faith-based broadcast. Uh, we do believe in the 66 books of the Bible. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And if he can do that, he can keep a book together. So we do not buy into the great apostasy stuff that's going on out there at all. However, you know, the Bible states that, you know, we, well, you know, most people interpret the Bible as saying we are limited here. Uh, you know, this race as being about 6,000 years and, you know, possibly that 6,000 years is just about up. However, there is evidence that perhaps we were not the first inhabitants of this here planet. And that is one of the things that is going to be discussed today. It was there other dispensations of life here before us. And I think you're going to find this to be very fascinating. I noticed the military analyst has come into the room. And just before I bring him on, I want to tell you that, uh, and by the way, thank you for the ones who have been subscribing to the uh, military analyst channel on Right On You. The essay that uh, we're going to be doing today is already posted. So if you want to follow along and look at the pictures, and not only that, but Chris has sent me additional things when you want to get into the Anunnaki and things like that. Uh, that information has also all been uploaded. So there's probably about uh, 10 different things and they're all in the history uh, section that is there. And, you know, it's dating back to, well, the claim is that uh, perhaps the earth goes back about 300 to 450,000 years. But for greater insight into this, I'm going to bring the man on himself. His name is not Chris Wilson. We call him the military analyst. He has to go incognito because he literally is risking his life with this amount of deep research that he has, uh, and he's been able to formulate after coming out of the uh, the military at very, very high-profile uh, positions. He is wanting to do his best to contribute to saving the world, and that is why he has been researching this, and now is the time for exposure. So without further ado, please welcome Chris Wilson, the military analyst. Welcome back to Right On Radio, Chris. Thank you, Jeff. I, I believe this will be very uh, uh, <clears throat> intriguing to your audience because it goes against everything we have learned in life to date. So I'm going to give you a little preview, and then I'll go into it so that people understand. 450,000 years ago, in, uh, a fourth-dimensional malevolent, meaning evil, gigantic reptilian race, the Anunnaki, that's A-N-N-U-N-A-K-I, and that translates in Sumerian, it equals from heaven to earth they came. And they came to earth, to Mesopotamia, Iraq, and to southern Africa. Their purpose was to mine gold and transport to their home planet, Nibiru, and that's N-I-B-I-R-U, which is our 10th planet. It's in an elliptical orbit, and it passes through our solar system, known as Sol 1, every 3,600 years. 
the reason they were mining, they came here, was uh, their atmosphere was degrading. So they literally uh, mined gold for uh, 450,000 years, and at uh, and they became the gods of Sumeria and Babylonia. Their race has five tiers: royalty and they're reptilian, royalty and nobility class, then engineer and science science class, um, scientific, uh, administrative and technical class. The fourth tier is a warrior class, and the fifth tier is a labor class. However, at the 220,000-year threshold, the labor class was tired of being slaved and revolted and demanded that their ruler, Anu, A-N-U, in their behemoth, in his behemoth spaceship orbiting above the earth, create a slave race instead. Anu directed his two sons, Enki, E-N-K-I, who was the chief operations officer, the younger brother, and Enlil, the older brother, was both the chief medical officer and the chief mining officer to genetically engineer a sub-race, that being of 3% reptilian DNA and 97% humanoid DNA. Michael Tellinger estimates that 4 million stone circles exist throughout southern Africa where the Anunnaki mined gold dating back, as mentioned, 450,000 years. The Russian crypto-linguist and archaeologist Zakaria Sitchin, and that's Z-C-H-A-R-I-A, Sitchin is S-I-T-C-H-I-N, read and translated Sumerian cuneiform, which they kept accurate historical records of their education, enslavement, genetic creation, and Sumerian kings list dating back 336,000 years. And little uh, genetically engineered the Sumerians and taught them civil, structural, construction, marine engineering, uh, agronomy, advanced mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry, astronomy, and astrology. And after 55-plus modifications later, we are their slave race today. I only have one photograph of a reptilian, uh, but I will get another. I have a severed head uh, of that was uh, from the um, warrior class that was captured and uh, killed uh, in the jungles of Brazil. Uh, that was done for the locals, and uh, it is absolutely fascinating. You will see a live a picture of a what was a live reptilian, and the warrior class is eight feet tall. Okay, now I'll go on with the with the actual briefing itself. But that gives the audience an idea that we were genetically created as a slave race initially and later as a food source. And we are not at the top of the food chain and we are not the most intelligent creatures uh, of mankind in the universe of any kind. All right, here we go. This is known as Michael Tellinger uh, has studied this for essentially uh, 20 years. And the title is The Temples of the African Gods, Revealing the Ancient Hidden Rules and Ancient Anunnaki Cities of Southern Africa, which date back over 300,000 years. And the audience, uh, they can look at the pictures on, on your website of university, uh, which has all these photos. And they will see that these sites uh, date back hundreds of thousands of years. So without reading the captions that I made for these, uh, I'll just go into the history. The history of Southern Africa is one of the greatest untold stories of the world. 
It has remained a guarded mystery by traditional knowledge keepers and African shaman for thousands of years. But in 2003, everything changed. With the accidental and serendipitous discovery of an ancient stone calendar that caused a chain reaction of events, which led us to decoding one of the greatest missing pieces regarding our human origins and the activity of the Anunnaki on planet Earth. Many history books and scholars have told us that the first civilization on Earth emerged in a land called Sumer. Sumer is what was uh, in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is now Iraq, some 6,000 years ago. This Sumerian civilization left behind a detailed account of human activity in millions of clay tablets that continue to reveal critical human behavior and outlines the relationship between the Anu gods and the people of Sumer. But our archaeological discoveries that began in 2003 suggest the Sumerians may have inherited much of their knowledge from a civilization that emerged many thousands of years earlier in southern Africa although thought to be the cradle of humankind. These discoveries also suggest that the same deities who became known as the Anunnaki through the works of Zacharias Sitchin and many others were also very active in the lives of the people of Southern Africa more than 200,000 years ago. In 2003, a strange arrangement of large stones that were neatly planted at the edge of a cliff near the town of, and I have to spell it because it's South African, K-A-A-P-S-C-H-O-O-P. That would be Kasheshup. South Africa was spotted by Johan Hein, and his name is J-O-H-N-H-E-I-N-E, from his airplane. After returning to the spot the next day to see the site on the ground, he instantly realized that this was no ordinary, no natural arrangement of monoliths, and so began a process of measurements and calculations that lasted several years. His meticulous analysis clearly shows that this was an ancient calendar that is aligned with the movement of the sun, solstice, and equinoxes, and that we can still mark every day of the year by the movement of the shadows cast on the flat surface of the calendar stone at the center of the site. But as it is with many ancient sites, including Stonehenge, the calendar aspect is not the main purpose of its structure, but merely a crucial feature built into the site. We have discovered deeper and more mysterious functions that only became apparent after many electro, uh, electronic and scientific measurements uh, several years later. Through its alignment with the stars and the movement of the sun, this African Stonehenge that I named Adam's Calendar, quote, has for the first time created a link to the countless other stones, ruins in South Africa and suggests that these ruins are much older than we initially thought and forces us to start rethinking the activity by earlier humans in the so-called, quote, cradle of mankind. The discovery of this calendar site was nothing new to Johann Hein, who had already spent at least 15 years photographing mysterious circle, uh, circular stone structures scattered throughout the mountains and valleys of southern Africa. These circular stone ruins have become affectionately known as, quote, stone circles, and they lie scattered in large clusters throughout the entire subcontinent that includes South Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, which was Rhodesia, Botswana, and parts of Mozambique. The complex that links uh, Nelspruit, N-E-L-S-P-R-U-I-T, uh, Waterval Boven, uh, Makadorp, Carolina, Bodplas, Dolstrom and Lindenburg and has a radius of approximately 60 kilometers. 
covering an area larger than modern-day Los Angeles and has emerged as the largest and most mysterious ancient city on Earth. The discovery of a bird statue that resembles Horus, meaning Egyptian, uh, carved out of dolerite, a small sphinx about 1.5 meters long, carved out of the same dolerite rock, and a petroglyph of a winged disc, many carvings of Sumerian crosses in circles, and an ankh, which was the Egyptian symbol of life and fertility, in a, radial, a radiating circle, suggests that the prototype Sumerian and Egyptian civilizations had their origins in southern Africa thousands of years before they emerged in the north. After meeting Johann Hein in early 2007, he invited me along with a large group of the most senior scholars in the fields of archaeology, history, and geology from several South African universities to experience uh, the spectacular vista of the ruins from a helicopter, an event that spanned an entire weekend. Though this was an incredible opportunity of a bird's eye view of the stone circles, on the day of the event, I was the only one to arrive. And so I alone gained new perspective and became the one that carried the torch of future research and investigation. Six years of research by a group of independent scientists and explorers has delivered what may be the crucial missing elements in our understanding of the lives and development of early modern humans. Our discoveries have been noted in two books, Adam's Calendar and African Temples of the Anunnaki, and will be updated in the soon-to-be-released The Lost City of Enki. This was actually published, I believe, 2013. But the research has also shown that these stone settlements represent the most mysterious and misunderstood structures found to date. It points to a civilization that lived at the southern tip of Africa, mining gold for more than 200,000 years, and then completely and suddenly vanished from the radar. We may be looking at the activities of the oldest civilization on Earth. Little did I know that when I named the newly discovered stone calendar, Adam's calendar, quote, how close to the truth I would be. This is only revealed to me by the preeminent Zulu shaman, and his name is Credo Mutwa, and that's C-R-E-D-O and M-U-T-W-A, some two years later, when he told me that he was initiated at that site in 1937 as a young shaman, and that this site is known to the African knowledge keepers as, in their language, I-N-Z-A-L-O, next word Y-E, next word L-A-N-G-A, or translated, birthplace of the sun, where, quote, heaven mated with Mother Earth, quote, and where humanity was created by the gods. But Credo went even further in his detailed explanation on the deep significance of the site when he explained that it was not just any god of the ancient times that was created humanity, but specifically a, de de uh, a deity that is known as Zul in Zulu as Enke, and he, they spelled it E-N-K-A-I, which is later used as E-N-K-I. The same deity known as Enki in the Sumerian text. This throws a whole new spin on our understanding of the Anunnaki on Earth and the, quote, fingerprints they left not only on ancient stone, but also the genetic manipulation creation of the human race. These fingerprints have now been very clearly exposed in our genetic makeup by the brilliant work of William Brown, a molecular biologist and geneticist of the highest order who is part of the research team of Nassim, uh, it's uh, Egyptian, N-A-S-S-I-M, or Arabic, H-A-R-M-E-I-N-S, Renaissance Project Research Foundation, on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. Out of sync alignments, 
After surveying Adam's calendar, it turned out that the north, south, east, and west alignment is out, meaning off, by three degrees, 17 minutes and 43 seconds, in an anti-clockwise direction. This may be a critical discovery regarding, regarding turbulent times in antiquity because it is irrefutably proved that the Earth's north-south alignment today is not where it was when the calendar was constructed. It is irrefutably proves that our planet has undergone a crustal displacement or something along those lines, taking the north-south pole alignment with it. The theory of crustal shift or crustal displacement was proposed by scientist Charles Hapgood. I have done an article on him and strongly supports, uh, supported by Albert Einstein. Adam's calendar gives us the geographical and geophysical proof that such events did actually occur. What we do not know, however, at this stage is when this shift happened. Mysteries, mysterious ancient ruins of South Africa. Until I started my research in 2007, it was generally accepted by scholars that there are about 20,000 ancient stone ruins scattered throughout the mountains of Southern Africa. Modern historians have been speculating about the origin of these ruins, often calling them the cattle kraal, and that's um, K-R-A-A-L, of little historic importance, end of quote. The truth of the matter is that closer scientific inspection paints a completely different and astonishing new picture about the ancient history of these stones. The scientific reality is that we actually know very little about these spectacular ancient stones, and it is a great tragedy that thousands have already been destroyed and continue to be destroyed through sheer ignorance by power lines, forestry, municipalities, farmers, and new housing developments. After my personal exploration on foot and by air over the ruins, I confidently estimated that the number of ancient ruins to be well over 100,000. This figure was confirmed by Professor Revil, R-E-V-I-L, Mason in January 2009. But after doing an extensive count on Google Earth and other aerial photographs, I concluded that there are at least a staggering 10 million of these circular stones, meaning ruins. The mystery, the mystery deepens when I found out that they have no doors or entrance into their original form and therefore could not have been a dwelling. They are all originally connected by what we now call channels. These are uh, direct lines which our history books call roads that, tribe drove, that tribes drove their cattle on, which is incorrect, and are also surrounded and connected to an ongoing grid of agricultural terraces that cover more than 450,000 square kilometers. This clearly points to a vast vanished civilization who grew crops on a gigantic scale. Next section, population problem. This immediately poses a huge problem for archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians because the accepted history of this part of the planet does not at any time in our past place anywhere nearly enough people to have them built this number of structures. It gets even more complex when you realize that these were not just isolated structures left behind by migrating hunter-gatherers, but a giant complex of circular structures all connected by the strange channels or lines suspended in a never-ending web of agricultural terraces. If we were to assume that these were dwellings, it would suggest a population of at least 10 million people, which is unimaginable to most of us today. Next section, ancient god gold fields. It is important to note that the mysterious ruins of southern Africa, which includes Great Zimbabwe, 
and millions of similar ruins in that country also extend into neighboring areas like Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, Kenya, and Mozambique. But why these ancient people were here in the first place? What were they doing? The past 200 years has seen a number of explorers write in great detail about these ruins. But their findings have most have been largely forgotten and their books are out of print. Most of these early explorers write about thousands of ancient mine shafts found in close proximity to these ruins. In fact, most of these mines have been described as gold mines, copper, tin, and iron mines, the four most precious metals. In my personal experience and research, I have found at least 25 ancient mine shafts in gold-rich area, which have been told about by, there are more by dozens of farmers all over South Africa. Ancient mines covered by 30 meters of soil have been reported at at least two by two miners in the 1930s in the province of Limpopo, that's L-I-M-P-O-P-O, and more than 75,000 mines have been reported by geological, geological companies in uh, Mumpang, I can't even pronounce it, M-P-U-M-A-L-A-N-G-A, uh, Mumpanga. Okay, it seems that gold mining has been going on here for a lot longer than most of us ever imagined. Anne Kritzer, her last name is K-R-I-T-Z-I-N-G-E-R, a geologist from the University of Zimbabwe, has shown in several papers that many of the ruins in Zimbabwe were most likely for the purpose of extracting and purifying gold and were not slave pits, animal pits, or grain pits, as is often suggested by ignorant scholars. The presence of Dravidian gold miners is shown in great detail by Dr. Cyril, C-Y-R-I-L, uh, Hromnik, which is H-R-O-M-N-I-K, in his astonishing book, Indo-Africa, dated 1981, showing in great detail the exploits of the Makamati uh, <coughs> people, M-A-K-O-M-A-T-I, uh, which were the Hindo-Dravidians who were here in southern Africa mining gold as far back as 200, uh, he states 2,000 years, and that's that's incorrect, and probably even further back in time. Next section, Sumeria and Abantu, and Abantu is A-B-A-N-T-U. The links to the Sumerian civilization in southern Africa simply cannot be ignored or erased. They can even be traced with etymology and the names and origins of indigenous people. The most obvious evidence are the mysterious origins of the word Abantu, A-B-A-N-T-U, the name commonly used to describe black South Africans. According to Krito Mutwa, the shaman, the name is derived from the Sumerian goddess Antu, A-N-T-U. Abantu simply means the children or the people of Antu, A-N-T-U. Next section, energy generation, ancient knowledge. Extensive electronic measurements in 2011 have shown that the circular stone ruins are in fact energy generating devices using the natural sound that emanates from the surface of the earth creating electromagnetic fields as a result of the sound amplification. The shape of the circular ruins are very specific and unique because each circle represents the cymatic pattern of the sound energy as it appears on the surface of the earth at that point. This energy was amplified by a simple understanding of harmonics and endolated the same way that we generate laser and saser beam technology today. Giant magnetron-shaped structures suggest that this was well understood by the ancients. 
I have measured these spectacular energies and electromagnetic waves and therefore do not hesitate to make these claims. Some of the sound frequencies go into the extreme high gigahertz levels, which is over 380 gigahertz, which are unheard of on Earth today in any normal application. The fact that these circles are all connected by stone channels makes it very clear to any scientist who works with electricity or energy that the stone circle complex is a giant energy generating grid that was most likely used in the mining and processing of gold on a scale unimaginable to us today. Next section, dating of the ruins and artifacts. This is a critical aspect of my research and there are several methods that I have had to resort to because we cannot use carbon dating to establish the age of stone. Neither can we assume that the pottery or artifacts found in the ruins were left behind by the architects. The many tools and artifacts that I have collected from my small museum in Waterval uh, Boven are quite unique and very mysterious. They are all made out of stone. They all seem to display strong acoustic properties, and I call them, quote, stones that ring like a bell. This was the realization that led me to discover that sounds play a critical role in the building of the ruins and the uses of energies that they create. One of the most obvious techniques I use in determining the possible age of the tools is a patina growth that forms in the rock. The kind of patina or skin that grows on these artifacts grows at a very slow rate and is estimated to be about 1,000 years per microscopic layer. In other words, by the time that the patina is visible to the naked eye, it is already at least a few thousand years old. Most of the artifacts in my collection are completely covered in patina several millimeters thick, suggesting that these ancient tools must be well over 100,000 years and even substantially older than that. In conclusion, we're standing at the threshold of a brand new discovery that will expose great surprises and unveil a great hidden part of human history. My new book, Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, uh, Contribution is a Blueprint for, humanity, for Human Prosperity, should be released by the end of September 2013. I am completing the follow-up follow to the African temples of the Anunnaki that will contain all the latest discoveries and conclusions I have reached regarding the vanished civilizations of southern Africa to date. And then I have additional pictures that go on, and then it goes into uh, the uh, Great Zimbabwe uh, Great uh, Enclosure. The Great Zimbabwe Ruins in Zimbabwe form uh, what is probably the greatest African monument ever known, impressive in the high granite walls of the grand of the great enclosure towering up to 36 feet high and the length of the walls extending over 820 feet. This site's important is such that the country is named after it, a rare accomplishment that an archaeological ruin can lend its name to a modern state. The great Zimbabwe primary structure the Great Enclosure is certainly the largest man-made edifice south of the Saharan and Egyptian culture. Originally built between 1050 to 1450 uh, current era, which is A.D., at the same time as the medieval cathedrals began to rise in Europe. It was one of the proud capitals of the African Bantu-related people who were great cattle herders and its granite blocks took advantage of the stones fracturing into flat blocks that required no mortar or other internal uh, reinforcement. The name Zimbabwe 
is originally from a Shona, S-H-O-N-A name, derived mostly from the word D-Z-I-M-B-A, Zimba, for the word house, and Mabwe, M-A-B-W-E, for stones. So Zimbabwe means in English, Jeff, house of stones. And this is how ancient it is. It's all been hiding in plain sight. While it took centuries for uh, Eurocentric cultures to acknowledge that it was the work of ingenious Africans, some associating of the great Zimbabwe with the likely Semitic but still legendary Queen of Sheba and King Solomon's mines, others with earlier Phoenician colonization, no credible source today argues against its African contribution and site history. An advocate of Semite, Semitic rather, phonetic or, or Arabic, uh, construction of the Great Zimbabwe was J. Theodore Bent, who was one whose sponsor was Cecil Rhodes, who created South Africa and had an, the country named after him because he was such a uh, prominent globalist and white supremacist, who also wrote about the Great Zimbabwe in the uh, book called Ruined Cities of Masha, Mashona Land, which is M-A-S-H-O-N-A-L-A-N-D. That was in ni- 1891. Carl Mauck, which is uh, uh, M-A-U-C-H, also late 19th century, favored the Queen of Sheba and the Phoenician stone working. The Shona-speaking people themselves migrated into the region several centuries prior to the Great Zimbabwe, possibly earlier. The previous country of Rhodesia severely restricted any public acknowledgments of African origins under Ian Smith and others, falsifying the architectural... Uh, record, some mid-20th century Rhodesian archaeologists, whites or not, did not toe the line on censoring what politics trumped, and uh, the evidence was increasingly verifying and thus lost their jobs as racist politics trumped archaeology between 1905 to 1929. Both Gertrude Canton Thompson and David Randolph McLiver firmly held to Bantu African construction in the 1960s onward. However, Peter Garlake, J-R-L-I-K-E, and Roger Summers and Paul Sinclair were all censored or removed from archaeological and museum posts for advocating Africans as the builders of the Great Zimbabwe. Thought by many to be the primary living space of the elite who ruled the region, the Great Enclosure was only one of many granite stone structures here in this valley. Gold mining in the area reached back at least a thousand years is, is uh, synchronous with the rise of the Great Zimbabwe structure and culture. Uh, the new research questions have clarified some of the prior studies of local gold mining and metallurgy in the immediate surrounding area. Nonetheless, a natural geological uh, phenomenon associated plutonic gold with granite batholiths. Gold working and trade in this precious metal trade do not necessarily explain the construction of the great enclosure, although iron mining began in the same valley as early as the 4th century CE, which is AD, and may have been contributed to the ultimate centralization of the local population here. The next section is uh, the Great Zimbabwe map, which was formerly Rhodesia. If gold mining in the region is synchronous with the site, some of the great enclosure purposes may also have been to smelt and, and protect stockpiles of royal gold, 
as David Kohler, K-O-E-L-L-E-R, and others assert. Otherwise, the granite walls offered almost complete protection from external forces, so they may also have functioned as defense barriers. The rich mine, uh, mineral geology of Zimbabwe included gold and iron extracted for at least a millennium by locals, who historically have been the technology and trade network for utilizing these natural resources without any other outside assistance. In response to critics who implied the indigenous African cultures of the time lacked the technology to utilize historic gold resources, notable gold artifacts found in burials at, uh, I'm going to have to spell it, M-A-P-U-N-G-U-B-W-E, uh, Mapungubwe, south of the Great Zimbabwe, long along the uh, Limpopo River between 1000 to 1300 CE. And similar, royal activity from K2, which is another African name, uh, it's Bamba uh, Dianlo, uh, B-A-M-B-A-N-D-Y-A-N-A-L-O, included metallic slag finds showing the local smelting and processing attest to the significance of the mineral extraction technology. In addition, the local Karoo system, that's K-A-R-O-O, sandstones along the Limpopo River, adjacent to K-2, and the other one I mentioned, M-A-P-U-N-G-U-B-W-E, suggests non-immediately local gold bearing geological connections uh, to the contact metamorphism is abundant in Zimbabwe where the granite plutons and the batholiths are adjacent to the serpentine formations. Like California Sierra Nevada's granite and foothill serpentines, uh, the serpentines even the California state rock because of its association with the mid-19th century gold rush and elsewhere. Zimbabwe is rich in serpentine with many iron-rich varieties also nearby the gold mining regions. Zimbabwe's serpentine is covered today for modern Shona sculpture. Zimbabwe's great dike of abundant serpentine formations include those at uh, four uh, African sites. I'm not going to pronounce them, among others. So the great Zimbabwe ruins may long be connected to historical mineral extraction. Sadly, many of the architectural features at the great Zimbabwe site that would have clarified mineral uh, re- resource extraction and mining technology and other cultural history have been distributed and confused by earlier looting and destruction during the first half of the 20th century, while the ethnocentric debates and suppression of evidence were in full swing. Although some earlier archaeological work was significantly conducted and unattained by racial prejudice, uh, Peter Garlake's work below, along with Huffman's published work, it wasn't until the independence from colonialization after 1980 that the Great Zimbabwe was listed on the World Heritage List in 1986 and the body of the National Museums and Monuments of Zimbabwe as a service became more professional as a modern her- uh, heritage organization. Fostering such needed dichronic and conservative studies as those by Chipunza, C-H-I-P-U-N-Z-A, Nordo, N-D-O-R-O, Matina, uh, M-A-T-E-N-G-A, among others, although the current political of the Great Zimbabwe for Prozano and Mugabe uh, propaganda 
has been undetermined some of the uh, gains made by the 1980s. Thus, many questions remain, including a further view of the more economically driven and technical purposes of the Great Zimbabwe. Some soapstone and serpentine structures uh, also functioned as the Great Zimbabwe in strategic wall placements that possibly had totemic value. For example, the most notable stone structure from the site are the eight Zimbabwe birds carved from the local uh, Mycacinus schist, and that's S-C-H-I-S-T, type of rock. The elliptical structure of the Great Enclosure has a rough diameter of almost 300 feet at its widest point. Its walls being almost 20 feet thick in places, tapering gently up for stability. There are technically two walls and the great enclosure has a conical tower reaching 30 feet high and 18 feet in diameter. Internally, the structure may have also had more temporary construction, such as wood and mud, and the areas around the ruins could have sustained up to 18 to 20,000 people with additional animal grazing and streams surrounding the stone ruins. The other two primary groups of ruins of the Great Zimbabwe site are simply called the Valley Ruins Complex and the Hill Complex stretching almost 20 acres across the landscape. The great size and complexity of the engineering of coring, moving, and placing the stones staggered the imaginations of the European visitors at mostly Portuguese explorers since the 16th century. Unable to credit Africans for the uh, momentality of the great Zimbabwe, many Europeans limited its technology and superb architectural accomplishments for political reasons, much in the same way the Spanish conquistadors uh, denigrated Mesoamericans as being barbarians and even without souls. As a Spanish apologist, uh, and his name is S-E-P-U-L-V-E-D-A, so that's Sepulveda, uh, wrote in the 16th century, so their economic and mineral exploitation could be more easily accomplished without accountability. Although many Zimbabweans are not connected to the great Zimbabwe site, recalling Nordos summary of garlic that the Great Zimbabwe remains to the mass of the population a remote and meaningless abstraction alienated from all that is significant in their culture. Many indigenous archaeologists like Nadoro are attempting to rectify ignorance and indifference. Nonetheless, modern Zimbabwe, having symbolically adopted iconic images of the site and even the Zimbabwe stone birds seen on the national flag is rightfully proud of the Great Zimbabwe and its extensive ruins that show an indigenous African architecture and a complete complex society capable of a dynamic technology and trade reaching great distance across Africa as many as a millennia ago. And then it goes on with the photographs that I included. And well, we have uh, multiple sites, but I'll just go on to... Uh, the next section, okay. If I may, Chris, who made the metropolis? A reminder that uh, if, what's that? I just wanted to give a reminder that uh, the, these Intel briefings have been posted at writeonu.com. That's right on with the letter u.com, and it's also a way to support uh, Chris and the show. Uh, so please, if you want to, there's two different levels you can support. Uh, there's a $17 one-time fee. Things will just keep getting added, keep getting added. We put about uh, seven or eight up today and you could actually follow along and look at the pictures that uh, Chris is describing 
the files are actually pretty massive. And, uh, and these ones that we're talking about today are added into the history section of the military analyst on right on you. Dot com and Chris, you are brave to take on all of these African names today. I gotta give you credit, sir. All right. Did did you give me an hour and a half today or or not? No, I have to cut it at an hour today. All right. Well, let's see if we can build in an hour and a half in the future, even if I start half an hour earlier. However, okay. All right. Um, we'll we'll talk about it and we'll make sure we have it uh, adjusted for next week. Okay, definitely. Okay, onward. Finding the remains of a large community with as many as 200,000 people living and working together was a major discovery in itself. But dating the site was a problem. The heavy patina on the rock walls uh, suggested that the structure were extremely old, but the science of dating patina is just being developed and is still controversial. Carbon-14 dating of such things as burnt wood introduced the possibility that specimens could be from recent grass fires which are common in the area. <coughs> the breakthrough came quite unexpectedly as Tony describes it. Johann Hein discovered Adam's calendar in 2003, and it was quite by accident. He was en route to, one, uh, to finding one of his pilots who had crashed his plane on the edge of the cliff. Next to the crash site, Johann noticed a very strange arrangement of large stones sticking out of the ground. While rescuing the injured pilot from about 20 meters down the side of the cliff, Johann walked over to the monoliths and immediately realized they were aligned with the cardinal points of Earth, north, south, east, and west. There were at least three monoliths aligned together towards the sunrise, but on the west side of the alignment, there was a missing, a mysterious hole in the ground. Something was missing. After weeks and months of measuring and observation, Johann concluded that it was perfectly aligned with the rise and fall of the sun. He determined the solstice and the equinoxes, but the mysterious hole in the ground remained a big puzzle. One day, while contemplating the reason for the hole, the local horse trail expert, Christo, came riding by. He quickly explained to Johan that there was a strange-shaped stone uh, there, which had been removed from the spot some time ago. Apparently, it stood somewhere near the entrance to the nature reserve. After an extensive search, Johan found the anthropomorphic, which is humanoid-shaped uh, stone. It was intact and proudly placed with a plaque stuck to it. It had been used by the Blue Swallow Foundation to commemorate the opening of the Blue Swallow Reserve in 1994. The irony is that it was removed from the most important ancient site found to date on Earth and mysteriously returned to the reserve for slightly different reasons. The first calculations of the age of the stone were made based on the rise of Orion, a constellation known for its three bright stars forming the belt, Orion's belt, of the mythical hunter. The Earth wobbles on its axis, so the stars and constellation change their angle of present in the night sky on a cylindrical basis. This rotation, called the precision, completes a cycle about every 26,000 years. By determining when the three stars of Orion's belt were positioned flat, meaning horizontal, against the horizon, we can estimate the time when the three stones in the calendar were in alignment with these uh, conspicuous stars. And they will see the map of that. Uh, the first rough calculation was at least 25,000 years ago, but new and more precise measurements were kept increasing the age. The next calculation was presented by a master archaeoastronomer who wished to remain anonymous for fear of ridicule by the academic fraternity. His calculation was also based on the rise of Orion and suggested an age of at least 75,000 years. The most recent and more 
accurate calculation done in June 2009 suggests an age of at least 160,000 years based on the rise of Orion flat on the horizon, but also on the erosion of dolerite stones found at the site. Dolerite and granite are two of the hardest stones on Earth. Uh, some pieces of the marker stones have been broken off and sat on the ground exposed to natural erosion. When the pieces were put back together, about three centimeters of stone had already been worn away. These calculations helped assess the age of the stone by calculating the erosion rate of the dolerite. Okay, lust for gold. Who made the metropolis? Why? It would seem that humans have always valued gold. It's even mentioned in the Bible describing the Garden of Eden's rivers. Genesis 2.11, the name of the first, quote, river is Phison, P-I-S-O-H-O-N. It flows around the whole land of Havila, which is H-A-V-I-L-A-H, comma, where there is gold. So that's from the Bible. South African is known as the largest gold-producing country in the world. The largest gold-producing uh, area is Vitterland, uh, which is uh, Dutch, uh, it's Dutch African, the same region where the ancient metropolis is found. In fact, nearby Johannesburg, one of the best known cities of South Africa is also named Egoli, E-G-O-L-I, which means the city of gold. Gold mining and for how long? Is there evidence that the, the mining took place in Southern Africa during the old stone age? Archaeological studies indicate that indeed it was so. Realizing that sites abandoned of ancient mines may indicate where gold could be found. South Africa's leading mining corporation, the Anglo-American Corporation in the 1970s, engaged archaeologists to look for such ancient mines. Published reports in Optima detailed the discovery in Swaziland and other sites in South Africa of extensive mining areas with shafts a depth of 50 feet. Stone objects and charcoal remains established dates of 35,000, 46,000, and 60,000 B.C. minimum for these sites. The archaeologists and anthropologists who joined in dating the finds believe that mining technology was used in southern Africa during much of the period subsequent to 1,000 B.C. I'm sorry, 100,000 B.C. In September 1988, a team of international physicists came to South Africa to verify the age of human inhabitants in Swaziland and Zululand. The more modern techniques indicated an age of 80,000 to 115,000 years. Regardless, the uh, most ancient structured gold mines of Monotapa, which is M-O-N-O-T-A-P-A in southern Zimbabwe, Zulu lends hold that they were worked by artificially produced flesh and blood slaves created by, quote, the first people. These slaves, the Zulu legends recount, went into battle with the ape man when the great war star appeared in the sky. It seems highly probable that the ancient metropolis was established because of its proximity to the large supply of gold on the planet. But why would ancient people work so hard to mine gold? You can't eat it. It's too soft to use for tool making. It isn't really useful for anything except ornaments and its physical beauty is on a par with other metals like copper or silver. Exactly why was gold so important to early Homo sapiens? To explore the answer, we need to look at the period of history in question. 160,000 to 200,000 years B.C. And learn what happened on planet Earth. What were humans like 160,000 years ago? Modern humans, Homo sapiens, can trace our history back through time to a point where our species evolved from other more primitive hominids. Scientists do not understand why this new type of human suddenly appeared. 
or how the change happened, but we can trace our genes back to a single female that is known as the mitochondrial Eve, EVE, as in Adam and Eve. Mitochondrial Eve, which is abbreviated MT-MRCA, is a name given by researchers to the woman who is defined as a matrilineal most recent common ancestor, which is the MRCA, for all current living humans. Passed down from mother to offspring, all mitochondrial DNA, the MTDA DNA, in every living person is derived from this one female individual. Mitochondrial Eve is the female counterpart of the Y chromosome Adam, the patriarchal uh, most recent common ancestor, although they lived at different times. Mitochondrial Eve is believed to have lived between 150 to 250,000 years uh, BC, probably in East Africa in the region of Tanzania, an area to the immediate south and west. Scientists speculate that she lived in a population of between perhaps 4,000 to 5,000 females capable of producing offspring at any given time. If other females had offspring with the evolutionary changes to their DNA, we have no record of their survival. It appears that we are all descendants of this one human female. Ancient Sumerian history describes the uh, ancient metropolis and its inhabitants. I'll be honest with you. The next part of the story is difficult to write. It's so shocking that the average person will not want to believe it. If you are like me, you want to do the research yourself, then allow some time for the facts to settle in your mind. Um, and one moment. And Chris, while you're just taking that moment, I just did send a text to, uh, I have a meeting at two o'clock and I asked them to push it back till two thirty, and I suspect they will, uh, suggest that it is okay. Honor. Okay. Okay, good. It'll help. Thank you. All right. We are often made to believe that the Egyptians, being the pharaohs and the pyramids, are where our known history begins. The oldest dynasties go back some 3,200 years BP, but that's a long time ago. But the Sumerian civilization in what we is now Iraq is much older. What's more, we have translated many of the historical tablets, writings in cuneiform and earlier scripts, so we know a lot about their history and legends. The Sumerian seal, which is uh, I've shown, depicts the legend of the, quote, great flood, which consumed mankind. Many Sumerian legends are strikingly similar to Genesis. Like Genesis, the Sumerian legend, Atrahasi, which is A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S, tells the story of the creation of modern humans, not as a loving God, but by beings from another planet who needed slave workers to help them mine gold on their extraordinary planet expedition. Who made the metropolis and why? This is the story of Atrahasi, who comes from an early Babylonian version about 1700 BC, but it certainly dates back to Sumerian times. It combines familiar Sumerian motifs of the creation of mankind and the subsequent flood, just like Genesis. The story starts out with the gods, quote, being from a planet called Nibiru, digging ditches and mining for gold as part of an extraordinary team. Modern humans, Homo sapiens, did not exist yet. Only primitive hominids lived on Earth. There were two types of gods, quote, the worker class and the ruling class, meaning officers. The worker gods had built the class, had uh, had built the infrastructure as well as toiled in the gold mines. And after thousands of years, the work was apparently too much for them. The gods had to dig out the channels, had to clear channels, 
and the lifelines of the land. The gods dug out the Tigris riverbed, and then they dug out the Euphrates. This is uh, listed by uh, Dali, the author, in Atrahasis, which is A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S. After 3,600 years of work, the gods finally began to complain. They decided to go on strike, which is the worker class I mentioned, burning their tools and surrounding the chief god Enlil's dwelling, his temple. Enlil's vizier, which is his advisor, uh, Nusko, which is N-U-S-K-U, gets Enlil out of bed and alerts him to the angry mob outside. Enlil is scared. Uh, the vizier, Nisku, advises Enlil to summon to the other gods, especially Anu, the sky god, that's their father, and Enki, the other, uh, the chief operations officer, the clever god of the fresh waters, and advise Enlil to ascend who is the ringleader of the rebellion. They send Nusku out to ask the mob of gods, who is their leader? The mob answers, every single one of us gods has declared war. Again, it's referenced uh, by Daly, D-A-L-L-E-Y. Since the upper class gods now see that the work of the lower class gods was too hard, they decide to sacrifice one of their rebels for the good of all. They will take one god, kill him, and make mankind by mixing the god's flesh and blood with clay. So it goes on, let the womb goddess create the offspring and let the man bear the load of the gods. And that's by Daly again, reference. After Enki instructs them on the purification rituals for the first, seventh, and fifteenth of every month, the god slaughter, and this is G-E-S-H-T-U hyphen E, so Geshutu, a god who uh, had intelligence, his name means either ear or wisdom and form mankind from his blood and some clay. After the birth, uh, goddess mixes the clay. All the gods' troops buy and spit on it. Then Enki and the women, uh, womb goddess take the clay into the room of fate, where the womb goddesses were assembled. He, Enki, trod the clay in her presence. She kept reciting an incantation. For Enki, staying in her presence, made her recite it, when she had finished her incantation, she pitched off 14 pieces of clay and set seven pieces on the right, seven on the left. Between them, she put down a, a mud brick, again referenced by Daly. The creation of man seems to be described as a type of cloning with what we would today call inverter fertilization. The result was a hybrid or evolved human with enhanced intellect uh, who could perform the physical duties of the worker gods and also take care of the needs of all the gods. We are told in other texts that this expedition came for gold and that great quantities were mined and shipped off the planet, which is true. The community in South Africa was called Abzu, A-B-Z-U, which was the prime location of the mining operation. Since these events appeared to coincide with the dates of mitochondrial eve, which is ranged between 150 to 250,000 BP, and appear to be located in the richest gold mining region of the planet, which is Abzu, which is South Africa. Uh, southern regions, some researchers are thinking that the Sumerian legend may in fact be based on historical events. According to the same text, once the mining expedition ended, it was decided that the human population should be allowed to perish in a flood, which was predicted by the astronomer of the gods. Apparently, the cyclo passage of the home planet of the gods, Miburu, was going to bring it close enough to the orbit of Earth that its gravity would cause the oceans to rise and flood the land, putting an end to the hybrid species Homo sapiens. 
according to the story, one of the gods is simply for a particular human, and it's pronounced uh, Z-U-I-S-U-D-R-A, and that was the original name of what you know as Noah. So it would be pronounced Zuzustra, and warned him to construct a boat to ride out the flood, and that was Enlil, the the uh, chief mining op- operations officer who was the nicer of the two brothers. The other one, Enki, wanted to wipe out mankind. Did this really happen? The only other explanation is to imagine that the Sumerian legends acknowledging life on other planets and human cloning were extraordinary science fiction. This is, in fact, itself, would be amazing. But we now have the evidence that the mining city, Abzu, is real and that it existed in the same area as a sudden evolution of hominids to Homo sapiens. And there are the other photographs that go with it. It deals extensively with the ancient stone calendars. They're linked to Adam's calendar, uh, Enki's calendar, which he renamed, and the ancient roads, terraces, and ancient mines, and what we now call the first people who lived on Earth. It presents evidence that this was the first civilization from where the Sumerians and Egyptians uh, got most of their knowledge and symbolism. It is the first ever scientific look at the ancient ruins of southern Africa and present groundbreaking new information. It is a real privilege being able to work on these ruins and be able to walk through thousands of them in the mountains of South Africa. We reached some startling conclusions about who these ancient people were, what they did, how they did it, and why they disappeared. What is most fascinating about this new discovery is that for the first time, we can pull together the different strands of disjointed knowledge from religious, esoteric, and historical circles and fit them together. It is astonishing how the dark, mysterious past suddenly makes a lot more sense. Okay, and then we go on to other pictures which I've included. Um, Decoding the ancient ruins of South Africa, scholars have told us that the first civilizations on Earth emerged in a land called Sumer, and this seems to be, uh, I pulled from three different articles, but um, they're using some of the same work. Uh, I'm just looking through, no, nope. this is actually, um, um, okay, well, there's hidden history. Uh, an Egyptian Ankh carved into a glacier slab in South Africa, and it's <laughs> this, this area is called D-R-E-I-K-O-P-S-E-I-L-A-N-D. So that's Drikopsiland. So uh, this petroglyph is worth a thousand words since the Ankh is inside a radiating circle, suggesting that the Lord of Late Light has the key to eternal life. It also suggests that the secret lies in the frequency of light or is linked to some kind of vibrational energy and combines both sound and light. This knowledge would be consistent with the circular ruins of South Africa that were used to generate energy by using sound and possibly light, also light. This understanding of the flow of energy and sound and light was rediscovered by Keeley, K-E-L-Y, Tesla, uh, T-E-S-L-A, and Rife, and that's R-I-F-E, and that's uh, Royal Raymond Rife, who was killed by our government in uh, 1930. Uh, as he discovered uh, the secret to curing cancer. Uh, the late 20th century. The Ankh is one of the most recognizable symbols of ancient Egypt. It represents the key of eternal life and knowledge. The quest for our human origins has led scholars and explorers down some fascinating paths. 
The past two centuries have seen steep, gigantic leaks in scientific technology that has swallowed researchers and allowed them to present some remarkable conclusions. It must be hastily added that most of what we have have been print presented with so far about human origins are only theories and hypotheses based on the latest information gathered by the messengers. It is a common mistake by the people outside the areas of research to believe some of these scientific theories to be the absolute final word on the subject. This process of information often starts because it is presented by the media who gets all the facts messed up, and before we know it, everybody believes it. History has taught us that humans, and especially the appointed leaders of the establishment, do not take kindly to change and new information, as we've learned. All we have to do is look at some of the great discoveries of the past few centuries to realize how stubborn and arrogant we can be about our personal deep-seated belief systems. Many discoveries have been met with fierce resistance, especially by religious leaders and so-called scholars, who in reality should be promoting the concept of progress. Countless books have been written about the covering up of the new discoveries because they did not fit in the pretty picture held by the authorities at the time. And if you think that this is how it happened in the past, and today we are well informed by the beloved media, you are not only incredibly naive, but grossly mistaken. Think of Galileo, who was forced to retract his scientific findings about our solar system. He was placed under house arrest and tortured until he apologized and retracted his statements. And he was in prison for 10 years. It took about another 100 years for his theories to be accepted. Just cast your mind back for the first flight of the Wright brothers in 1903, which probably happened much earlier, but could not be unleashed uh, on the people of the time because expert scientists of the time insisted that man could not fly a heavier-than-air machine. The fantastic discoveries of Nikola Tessa and his free energy. Uh, Royal Raymond Reif, who found the cure of, uh, for all diseases, and uh, 1931 demonstrated how to cure cancer at will in a laboratory. Around 1888, John Keeley demonstrated his anti-gravity device. Sound vibration machines that could drill stone of any density with absolute perfection and even vibrational fields that could completely crush gigantic granite megaliths to the finest power powder in just a few seconds. These discoveries were, were covered up so well that they were completely removed from the border knowledge and pool and remain so today. They've been removed from history. Tesla, Reif, and Keeley should have changed history dramatically and yet they mysteriously faded into mediocrity. During the course of explanation, exploration, we are often presented with the evidence and information outside of our scope of comprehension that goes against everything we have been taught. But this is after all what true science and discovery is all about. It has no limits and is forever changing. The only constant in science is change, in quotes. Our immediate knee-jerk response is often to reject new information because we have never heard about it before. I trust you will agree that this is not a scientific argument and never will be. Most of us know Albert Einstein as a genius who answered many of our questions about space and time and of the light. But Einstein himself pushed back the boundaries of possibility like all true scientists. Very few of us are aware of the bulk of his work, and one of his favorite sectors was called Spooky Action at a Distance. It basically shows how two particles separated by extreme distance uh, and no connection between them of any nature still remain connected by some invisible force. When one of these particles is stimulated and responds in a specific way, the other particle also displays the same immediate response. 
across a vast distance, faster than the speed of light. This part of his research, which included the experiments at Harvard University, show how sound energy creates patterns in sand. Low frequencies seem to create more basic circular patterns, while higher frequencies make more complex patterns. Interfering frequencies cause strange complex patterns. The rule is quite simple. Every frequency of energy manifests in a very unique pattern. This is a pattern created by the vibrational energy of the vowel, quote, A. Note the circle in the middle and that the outer circle is not perfectly round, but has a wave-like shape around the parameter. They can view that in the pictures. Tesla did thousands of experiments as part of his research. He showed that Earth is alive with currents of energy that surface in various frequencies everywhere. He realized that this energy can be used to power any apparatus imaginable and for any application imaginable. This energy did not need wires to be conducted. It was carried in the particles and the molecules of air in a way that was not understood before. The Earth acted like a capacitor for this energy, an inexhaustible storage device that could provide any amount of energy needed anywhere. It is obvious that this kind of easy access to free energy was not well-liked and received by the controlling electrical giants. It was not long before they destroyed everything Tesla had invented and the FBI's confiscated his patents because his patents because of his financial debts. The Philadelphia experiment in July 1943 has been very successfully ridiculed and covered up to a large extent. Max Planck, and that's P-L-A-N-C-K, the father of quantum physics, is another Nobel Prize winner who had a very advanced view of the universe. But once again, his, quote, other work is underplayed and ridiculed to a large extent. Planck was fascinated by the concept of, quote, the matrix, in quotes, which was an expression that emerged from the world of hardcore physics and not some Hollywood script writer. He believes that the universe is connected by an invisible matrix grid of energy to which we are all connected through an invisible grid of consciousness. We therefore all share a collective memory and knowledge which is held in this matrix, not in our brains. In 1933, Paul Dirac, D-I-R-A-C, won the Nobel Prize for Physics when he showed that all matter in the universe originates from a source of gamma ray light or energy. This matter emerges from the sub subatomic singularity state of a non-dual particles that eventually make up the whole universe and all the stuff in it. Gamma ray light crosses the whole universe in an instant, which could explain the spooky, quote, action at a distance by uh, Einstein. Tesla's wireless light bulb. His light bulb was one example of tapping into the earth as an energy device. It had no wires and simply drew the energy from the hand of the person who held it. Some of the light bulbs did not even touch or need to touch a person, but simply lit up when a person was within close proximity. One of the hundreds of patents of Nikola Tesla in 1914, the man should have changed the world, is the truth. A device for transmitting electrical energy without wires. Note that Tesla called it radiant, comma, nonpolar energy, not electricity. Therein lies a major clue for those who are trying to emulate his work. This discovery fits the long-held belief that the speed of light is actually not a barrier to travel, but the elements that make up light is the actual mechanisms for traveling beyond the speed of light. So we can explore the ancient stone ruins in, of South Africa and keep bumping into mysterious, inexplainable stuff 
and ponder its origin, and we need to keep all this in mind. We are uncovering vanished civilizations of which we have no knowledge of at all. We are knocking at the door of our human origins, and what we find is not always what we planned or had expected. Uh, Greg Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N, is an American scientist and author who has done much research on this subject and published several highly informative books. What I find fascinating about this is that it fit into the long-held belief that the speed of light is actually not a barrier to travel, but the stuff that makes up the light is the actual mechanism for traveling beyond the speed of light. The Tesla Tower in Long Island, New York, it was from this tower that Tesla beamed the free energy that could power people's homes and cars without any wires. When his sponsor, J.P. Morgan, realized that this, quote, energy could not be measured or easily controlled, he stopped funding his uh, any of his projects, demolished the tower, and the FBI confiscated all the documents. Morgan ended up owning the giant hydroelectric plants in North America, particularly the one at uh, Niagara Falls. To this day, no one has been able to emulate Tesla's free energy and his methods, which remain a great mystery to all scientists. Tesla reportedly, one, removed the uh, engine from a convertible, two, replaced it with a black box of some sort, three, placed an aerial sticking out of the back seat of the car, and four, drove the car around Long Island for about six weeks without any petrol, just powered by the energy beam from the Tesla Tower. Scientists only have a few hypothetical answers based on our current pool of accumulated knowledge. I've been studying human origins for over two decades, and there is only one conclusion that I've been able to reach in all this time. Things are not as they seem, and as soon as you begin to uh, dig into the unknown past, you very quickly realize that, the, that hidden below the sands of time is a completely different history of mankind a past that has somehow been hidden from view over thousands of years. The deeper we dig, the more we ask, the more convinced we become that we have been told is not necessarily the truth. We've been lied to. And then, uh, what time is it? Let me see. Uh, we have uh, 20 All right. Uh, I've covered in just over an hour and 10 minutes the majority of, of this, and the rest are pictures. Uh, what we can do is open it up to questions because I'm sure the audience has a lot of uh, unanswered questions. You put a lot of stuff out there, Chris. And, uh, you know, one of the things, I, and I do want to make a couple comments, if you'll uh, if you'll permit me uh, to just put in a Always. little bit of uh, a balanced point of view to this. And one of the things is when, uh, when we brought Chris into the fold here on Right On Radio, uh, you know, it was – uh, evident that Chris and I were going to disagree on some things. I, I really do believe the Bible. I believe in what God has told us. Uh, however, uh, it's always good to get this other point of view and this other research out there. And what, what I've discovered personally is that there is a lot of truth in this. And actually, although we might disagree on a couple fundamental points, uh, we will agree on a lot of things. And when it comes down to it, you know, we could debate it, of course, but uh, neither Chris or I were, you know, here before Christ. We weren't here, uh, you know, uh, a few hundred thousand years ago. And so the proof is, is very hard to come up with. And one of the things that was mentioned, and I'm glad it was discounted uh, when it came to the metals and the things, Chris, is the uh, carbon dating because there's not a legitimate scientist in the world that will stand by carbon dating science. Uh, 
It's just so out there. It's kind of accepted. Uh, I, I will say that, but, uh, it, it's really, there, there's considered to be no legitimacy to it. Uh, in having said that, now, when we go back to the a- ancient civilizations and, you know, if God has said, you know, Adam and Eve were put here, uh, let's say, uh, 6,000 years ago is what most, uh, biblical theologians will agree on. Uh, what is also known and most biblical theologians will agree on is that the, uh, the fall of Lucifer and the angels was before man, uh, stepped on earth. But, you know, but don't, but so a lot of people will think, okay, so then the angels, the fallen angels came down here and they had the society on earth here. But think about this. Angels, who knows how old these uh, angels or these other creatures of God existed? It could be hundreds of thousands of years. And, the, you know, the, the, it's known that, sat, that uh, Satan had his throne on Saturn, but he could travel to Earth. They could travel through the universe. They're spiritual beings. Uh, it's not like, you know, uh, they, they can't do these things. And so it, it is worth considering that the ancient civilizations were not like us uh, before Adam and Eve, but there were, there was life in different forms, possibly in a carbon form such as we are, uh, but also as, as spiritual forms. And it's possible that the spiritual forms, if they figured out the Nephilim, you know, by Genesis 6, well, perhaps before that they had discovered and created some type of carbon form that uh, that Chris had actually uh, just uh, dissected and mentioned of how they did it. And so you have to consider that there is some truth in this. And, and I'm not trying to convince anyone either way. Look, pray to your God and uh, and ask for answers and come up with answers on your own. But I'm finding all of this stuff to be absolutely fascinating. And when, especially when Chris was talking about the power sources and, uh, and the large circles and things like this and, and, you know, these power centers that they had. And we know now, uh, through recent years about the power on the ley lines and the different powers. And we know about when they build these churches and they put the big steeples on them. It's because they're actually channeling energy kind of similar, uh, but different to what Tesla was doing with his, uh, with his giant electrical tower, it's and the the technology has been hidden from us and hidden from us. And the one thing that I certainly agree uh, with Chris on is that uh, you know they have made us a slave class. And uh, where I differ, uh, well, I'm not even sure I differ from Chris on it, but my opinion is that. Uh, yes, we are being treated as a slave class, but that's just because our humanity and who we are has really been hidden from ourselves. And, you know, I believe we could take authority in their spiritual power and everything else. But I just think that was completely fascinating, uh, Chris, and I thank you very much. And, and you're right. Uh, I do believe that, uh, you know, Africa is kind of the, uh, the cradle of life and, uh, and the pictures that you've included in this, uh, this very deep research, Chris, just is mind blowing. And, uh, and the, what the picture of the one reptile. And, and of course we know, uh, now that, uh, that they're still among us folks. 
and they can shapeshift, they can put on cloaks and look like humans, and man, this sounds so far-fetched, but if there wasn't so much evidence to it, and by the way, uh, eyewitness evidence to it, and one of the eyewitnesses uh, to it is Cisco. Cisco has been in Buckingham Palace, down below in the chambers, and it was like four times a year, and there's more people who have come out, but I have a personal relationship with her, and she has no reason to lie. The reason why they wear theirs, these large gowns for their ceremonies is because they're going to shift into a different being. And you're right, they're about eight feet tall when they go into those uh, those uh, incarnations of themselves and they shapeshift. And so that's why they're always naked underneath their robes, these Satanists. Uh, anyways, I, it gets me uh, going on that. But yeah, Chris is right. We have time for just a couple calls. And then uh, I do have a big show announcement for Friday and also a possible show on Thursday as well. Uh, but the lines are now open. If you have a question for Chris or a comment for the military analyst, please do call in now. We only have a few minutes for this. So I'm going to ask that you do keep your questions brief. And while you're waiting for questions, um, I'll also let you know that uh, the previous woman that asked, the young lady uh, asked about uh, uh, the last session about Crystal City. That was actually, although I know of other references, that in that article that was actually referring to the Pentagon. Well, interesting. We we do know. Well, interesting. We we do know. We're just going to ask that you keep your microphone muted until I bring you on. I'm going to bring you on one at a time. We have two callers. That's all the callers we're going to take today. Uh, but uh, all right, we're just because we sometimes experience a bit of an echo. But first, I'm going to bring on Raccoon Six. Raccoon Six, welcome to Right On Radio. How are you guys doing? Good, Raccoon. All right. Uh, okay, I've done a lot of research in this too, and it's uh, been many years, you know, like 25, 30 years, approximately, and. We were designed as a slave class. Our leaders in all our assets, like religion and government and working, they use us the same way they did back in the day. But the thing was, see, when those people left this earth, or some of them left this earth, I should say, <coughs> we were told that to give our stuff to the priests who required us to bring certain things to them. And we didn't realize because we probably were dumbed down at the time that these people were in acting with God, but actually they weren't. They were suppressing the knowledge that these people had left and only certain people were left over like the Nephilim or whatever you want to call them. And it continues today. And Chris, I enjoyed your, uh, your, your presentation there because it's spot on. And the information is out there. We just have to make up our minds to look it up, read it, and digest it. That's all I got. Well, thank you for the comment and uh, appreciation. There'll be more to come that's absolutely revealing. We'll be traveling around the world to different locations. Uh, we'll be going to Turkey, 
I think it's only fair that the audience uh, learn about the Atlantean race because a uh, Atlantean princess was found in Turkey by Dr. Carmen Volter, and the minute it went to the public, it was released to the uh, uh, Turkish government. She was her site was closed down, but she was able to take 147 photographs before she was kicked out of the country. And you're going to see what an Atlantean princess looks like. Go ahead. Well, that's awesome. And, hey, listen, Raccoon 6, I really appreciate you coming on and giving your insight and actually, uh, you know, confirming your belief in some of the things that Chris said. That was really excellent, man. I appreciate you very much. Okay, next we're going to bring on Ninja Nurse. Ninja Nurse, welcome to Right On Radio. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I have um, devoured this information. I listen to it over and over. I take notes. Um, and my question is, where do I go for information? And I feel intrinsically that many of these things that are being said are true. Um, but where do I go for more information that's not like, well, a bunch of crap? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll give you some authors and you can uh, research them. I've done most of their work already in the transcribed, if not written it. Um, Michael Sarian, and that's he, he was Irish. He lives in Seattle, Washington. His last name is uh, the T is silent. T S A R I O N. I consider him the number one alternative historian in the world. Number tied for second place, uh, you have uh, um, Rosette Delacroix, and it, she has a French name, uh, R O S E T T E. Uh, Delacroix is uh, D E L A C R O I X in French. That's uh, Rose of the Cross, but she's not a Rastacrucian. She's a very devout Christian, and she lives in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, the third one would be uh, Sean Young, S-E-A-N-Y-O-U-N-G, and he will be a guest on uh, uh, several of these platforms that I'm, I'm arranging. He agreed to it. Uh, he is uh, definitely either tied for second or tied to first. He's been writing for uh, 25 years. I started writing in 2005. And he had a 10-year head start on me, but I was researching since 1995. And uh, he's absolutely phenomenal as well. Uh, another one is Ralph Ellis. Uh, that's R-A-L-P-H-E-L-L-I-S. Uh, he is the number one historian who's referenced by uh, Michael Sarian. And uh, he's the number one uh, authoritarian on uh, Christ. Uh you also have Wes Penry, W-E-S-P-E-N-R-E, is also incredibly good. Uh, you also have uh, uh, Ken Tadeshi, uh, K-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-H-I. Uh, he's American, and so is Wes Penry. Um, those are, there should be about six right there. Uh, those, that should give you a head start. Um, and, uh, Michael Sarian, and this is M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and his last name, T-E-L-L-I-N-G-E-R, Tellinger, of the, the essay I just did today. Uh, he is uh, brought to truth about what uh, Raccoon 6 uh, just confirmed, his, his uh, research. And I have others, but I can't think of them off the top of my head because I have uh, memory damage 
for uh, short-term memory for 30 seconds. But my long-term memory is intact. Well, I think it's just retrieving a me. wealth of information right there alone because I do know that they have very deep libraries of, uh, of information. And don't forget, uh, you know, Chris compiles all this stuff and uh, does his own research as well based on his own experiences, and that is all available on writeonyou.com. Just join the military analyst, and it actually helps support as well. Uh, so feel free. Yep, I'm a member of that, so I I paid for a subscription, and I've also devoured that information. Thank you. Well, there's there's more up there today, so there's probably you know a, a good another week's worth of uh, of research and going through, and uh, uh, and I'm gonna keep adding to it. We're gonna always over deliver on it because Chris has so much information compiled. He's literally got about seven thousand essays that. Uh, that we need to get up and uh, that's why we needed a hosting platform to do it. And it, you know, it all takes time and everything, but uh, Hey, thank you for the call ninja nurse. And, and thank you, Chris. I'm just going to make a couple quick announcements here. Um, Friday show. Uh, I'm going to be doing another one on Friday at 1 PM. And this one is going to be very special. Hey, are you supporting the truckers and stuff like that? And what's going on? So I have a guest who has all the information he feels he can bring the government down. Wow. And let me tell you a little bit about his background. His name is Kirk. He was a Canadian Ranger. That's a, that's a special arm of the uh, Canadian military. Uh, they're kind of the, the, the eyes and ears, uh, posted around, you know, and, uh, kind, kind of hidden in remote areas and watching and protecting. The country, they're the guys who teach all the military uh, how to survive in in winters and things like that and how to survive in the woods, how to survive if you got in a plane crash in a remote area. Uh, this guy is something else. And what he discovered uh, was uh, the amount of fraud and how they're using the, the – and he's got, he's got the receipts, folks, and how they're using the military to pay off all their friends and not uh, support their military. And he has been jailed. He has been forced out of it. He was kids were taken. He was drugged, put into a straitjacket, and shipped off to a mental institution. You can tell this guy is not mental. He was a very successful uh, entrepreneur outside of uh, being a Canadian uh, ranger. And uh, he just wants to get his story out. And no one has wanted to touch this story because it's so explosive. And, uh, and, you know, one of our listeners, actually Natasha, uh, connected me with this person and, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm unafraid. So I'm going to do it. Uh, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not completely stupid, however. So I, I am taking precautions. And one of the precautions is I would like to do a show on the, this Emergencies Act thing that happened in Canada. I have a lot to share about it. However, uh, just full candor. Uh, one of the things that the Emergencies Act is doing is their, the bank, the Canadian government in their tyrannical fashion now is, uh, you know, they've essentially established martial law. And if you go against the government in any way, they will seize your bank accounts. And, uh, you know, literally, you know, one of the things I've had to do to survive here as a podcaster is I've just cashed in an investment. So I need to get that out of the bank <laughs> before, uh, before anyone can take it. Uh, so if I could do that in time, I'm going to do a show on Thursday. If not, I will get the information out. But we're definitely going to be doing this one on Friday, regardless of 
this this man Kirk's story needs to get out and uh and I really hope you'll tune in. So it'll be one o'clock same time uh as we normally do at one PM Eastern Standard Time, right here on Podbean Live. And Chris, any uh, final comments before we get going? Yes, for Ninja Nurse, I have one other name. Uh the, the one of the greatest historians uh on World War Two his name is David Irving. I personally contacted him in 2014, and it's just like it spells, D-A-V-I-D, last name I-R-V-I-N-G. Uh, he was about 74 when I contacted him. I hope he's still alive now. But he is the one of the number one historians on Hitler's methodology, his uh, uh, tactics, and uh, his senior staff, and he is fluent in German, and his videos are online. Just look up David Irving. Um, you can probably catch them on YouTube if they haven't been removed or other sites, but, uh, he is also, uh, very good. And, um, I will come up with other authors and, uh, send a list to, uh, to you, Jeff, and that way you can provide to the audience. Okay. Wonderful. Will do. And thank you very much again, Chris. We appreciate your time, your dedication and, uh, and what you want to, what you're trying to do for humanity. Uh, it is very, very much appreciated. And hey, listen, we appreciate each one of you that, uh, that shows up and participates in these, uh, in these lives and, uh, appreciate the, the gifts, the super chats and all that stuff. Uh, it really, really is excellent. It, it, it so benefits the algorithm. That's how we became number four in news on this platform, which is no small, uh, you know, accomplishment and, you know, as I'm starting to learn about how these pod points work with their algorithms and stuff like that, it really, really does make a big difference. So God bless each and every one of you. And remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor, and make a difference in your community.